Well, good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. Um, welcome. My name is David. Um, I'm one of the, the pastors here, and we are so glad that you've joined us. If you're new, uh, welcome. We're, we're right in the middle of a series we're walking through right now in the book of Hebrews, and uh, you picked a great week to be here, and so we're, we're excited to have you. Hey, if you would, uh, would you grab your phone and, and scan this? Um, this? This will help you know what's going on in our church. So every single Monday, so tomorrow, we'll send out a newsletter or, or a reminder of the things that we talk about from stage, and also a couple things that are, that are uh, on the radar, that are in the future, that are coming up. And so if you wanna stay uh, informed about what's going on, the best way is to scan this QR code. Um, and we'd also love to meet you. A couple ways to do that. Um, there's a, there's a, I'm a new uh, fill-out form on, on the QR code as well. But then as you leave today, if you just continue to walk straight into the uh, community booth or connections booth, it's right straight in front of you, you can talk to somebody. And we would love to connect with you, hope you get plugged in. That's what we're doing here at Fellowship Fayetteville. Um, a couple of things you want to keep in front of you this morning. The first one is our young adult gathering. And so the young adult gathering is for people who are post-college, uh, maybe in your first or second job, married, single, um, any in that stage. So 20s and 30s, we have our, our gathering Tuesday, June 22nd, and we would love for you to be there with us. Um, it's just a great time for the people in the same stage of life to connect and to walk through life together. And so we do that once a month, and the hope is that over time, we can build a community of young adults who are not only um, a part of our church, but who are serving in the community and being outreach as well. And so please, if you're a young adult, um, if you're in the same stage of life as that, join us Tuesday, June 22nd. We'd love to have you. Um, another thing is Merge. So Merge is our, uh, our group pre premarital counseling experience. And I, I've had a, quite a few friends who have gone through Merge and what they loved about it was the, the conversations that it led them to have before walking into marriage. And throughout the whole study, um, you're gonna have conversations about what does a godly marriage look like? What are, some, what are some things that we can start from the beginning of our marriage that can keep us healthy the longer we go? And I know it's been uh, incredible for a lot of my friends who've done it. So if, you're in the, if you are seriously dating um, or you're engaged, we would, we would really highly recommend you to do merge, or if you know somebody, um, remind them that that's coming up soon. So it starts on July um, 11th, and so we have a couple more weeks you can sign up, but if you know somebody that you think would be interested in this or benefit from it, um, please point them, point them to that. Uh, well, last week, Clark walked us through Hebrews chapter four, and his, his main uh, theme was Jesus is the source of true rest for believers, and so to start this morning, I want to read a section um, over us out of Hebrews chapter 4. So this is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Um, and this just comes off of a section talking about the Word of God, how it exposes us all, how there's nothing hidden from God. Um, and the fact to, to be fully known um, can be a really scary thing. And the Hebrews writer, the first thing after that is not condemnation, saying you're exposed, you're in trouble, but rather he points us to Jesus. And that's a perfect practice for us, even in our own lives and our own sin. So hear these words. Since then, 
we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so this morning, I wanna encourage you to approach the throne room of grace with confidence, not with condemnation. If you're a child of God this morning, you can rest in the fact that the Lord knows. He knows your darkest thought from this past week, maybe your darkest thought from this morning, and he doesn't throw condemnation, but rather he points us to Jesus and says, no, you have a perfect son interceding for you at my right hand. And so this morning, can we stand together and sing this? Remind ourselves of this truth. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus this morning together. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. Hear this. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thus depart. No tongue can bid me as we sing this verse, I want you to think about these words. Satan tempts me to stay and tells me of the guilt within of word I look at. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to work on Him and pardon me, to work on Him. I see. 
this morning as a family, we're going to take a Selah, and a Selah is simply just a pause to refocus our minds on the Lord, and so together, let's take a moment to pause, to refocus our hearts and our minds on our King Jesus. Lift up the cup in the grave. 
Father God, we praise the one and risen Son of God, and we praise him only. Lord, may we never lose our wonder. May we remember the goodness of God, even when there's trials and there's hangups and there's hardships. But God, we love you and we remember you and we trust you. So Father God, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Well, good morning. Everybody stay up late watching baseball. <laughs> it's fun times right now. I'll tell you what I'm really excited about. I can see your faces. How great is it to be gathered for worship? Yes. And not have to worry about a mask. So welcome. We're so glad you're here. I want to welcome those of you joining us on the live stream. We're glad to have you as well. Don't worry. I can't see your face. You can see me. You're fine. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to continue our series as we're working our way through the book of Hebrews, as Dave said. You know, one of the things I've noticed about Americans, and including myself, is we don't have a real good sense of the long passage of time in history. Like our country itself is less than 250 years old, and so we don't have this long sense of history. If you ask somebody my age, what's something that happened a long time ago? We'd probably say, I don't know, World War II? If you ask my kids who are teenagers, what's something that happened a long time ago? They'd say, I don't know, friends came out in the 90s? Like we don't have this sense of the arc of history, and I've learned this from spending some time with international students. They're not impressed by a few hundred years. Take, for example, this building, Old Main. All of us U of A alums are rightfully proud of it. It's almost 150 years old. It has old in the name. You show this to a student from China or Greece or Egypt. They are not impressed. They're not impressed with 100 years. In their home countries, the 100-year-old building is the new one. Their old buildings are 1,000 years old. And so I think that we don't appreciate how long a thousand years is. And I bring that up this morning because I think it affects how we read our Bibles. This morning, we're gonna move through scripture in 1,000 year jumps. And I want us to just kind of try to wrap our mind around how long that actually is. So if we went back a thousand years, a thousand years from ago from right now would be the year 1021. You know what was going on in 1021? Vikings, the Holy Roman Empire. Things that we think of as a long time ago were less than a thousand years ago. Marco Polo, Genghis Khan, the Protestant Reformation. None of that had happened yet in 1021. You go back another thousand years, that's the time of Christ. This morning we're gonna start 2,000 years before that even. We're going to start in 2000 B.C. We're going to start with the man Abram. You might remember Genesis chapter 12. It takes place in approximately 2000 B.C. God chooses a man named Abram, and he's going to change his name to Abraham eventually. He's going to tell him to go to a place he'll show him, and he says, I'm going to bless you. And here's what God promises Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you land That'll become the nation of Israel. He says, I'm gonna give you descendants. That'll become the people of Israel and spiritually speaking, all believers. And then he says, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And then here's the big one. Through you, Abraham, I'll bless the whole world. 
That's in Genesis 12. So with that in mind, we're gonna pick up the story in Genesis 14. Abraham's chilling under, by the way, he's still called Abram at this point. I'm just gonna call him Abraham. That's what we know him as. I'm gonna mess up and call him that anyway, so let's just start there. Abraham's chilling under an oak tree. And this messenger runs up and he says, Abraham, something's going on down in the valley that you need to know about. Well, what was happening was there were five kings. They were, they were kings of these cities. And they had all been under the thumb of this little coalition of four other kings, outsiders. And they had been having to pay tribute and pay for protection. And these five kings got together and said, you know what, we're not gonna do that anymore. We're not gonna pay protection. We're gonna stand up for ourselves. And they did. And the four other kings said, no. And so they rolled in and rolled over those five kings. They took material things, they took possessions, but they also took people. And one of the people they took was Abraham's nephew, Lot. So Abraham says to his guys, all right, round up the crew. They get 318 trained men together and they're on the move. Now they're much smaller than this invading army and they're traveling light, so they catch up with them quickly. And Abraham divides his guys into two forces and they attack the invading army. And they don't just beat them. They beat them so soundly that they chase them 100 miles out of the country and recover all of the people and property. And so they're returning home and they're almost back to their, their hometown. They're loaded down with all this stuff they've recovered. And these two kings, local kings, come out to meet them. The first is the king of Sodom. Ever heard of it? It's next door to Gomorrah. Abraham wants nothing to do with him. You can tell in the text. The king of Sodom says, listen, Abraham. Great, hey, great job getting all the stuff. You just keep all of my stuff. Just give me back my people. And Abraham says, no, no. I'm not keeping any of your stuff. I don't want you going around saying, Abraham's only rich because of me. As a matter of fact, in the text, Abraham says, I wouldn't take a sandal strap from you which I think is pretty good 4,000 years ago, shade to throw at somebody to say, I wouldn't even take a broken Chaco from you. <laughs> but there's another king that comes out. It's totally different. This king's name is Melchizedek. That name, Melchizedek, it means king of righteousness. And we're told that he's the king of Salem, which is the same word as shalom. It means peace. He's the king of peace. As a matter of fact, the city that he's the king of will have its name changed eventually. Jeru means city. Jeru Shalom, city of peace. It's Jerusalem. This guy's name is king of righteousness and he's the king of a pre-Israelite Jerusalem. Are you intrigued yet? Not only that, we're told that he is a priest of God Most High. And interestingly, this is the first time the word priest is used in the whole Bible. And so this is as good a time as any for us to just pull back and review real quick. What is a priest? What does a priest do? It's gonna keep coming up over and over in the book of Hebrews. Well, a priest in any religion is a person who stands between people and their God or gods. It's a person between the human and the divine. The dictionary definition of a priest is a person whose office it is to perform religious rites and especially 
to make sacrificial offerings. So the priest offers sacrifices and performs rituals to make it possible for humans to have an encounter with the spiritual. And as the history of Israel will unfold, it'll be Abraham's great-grandsons who are the fathers of the 12 tribes. And one of those tribes will be designated as the priestly tribe. Only the sons of Levi, we call them Levites, will be eligible to be priests. Moses is from that tribe. So is his brother Aaron. Aaron was the first priest appointed by God. But our story with Melchizedek is 600 years, 600 years before any of that would happen. And here's this man, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Jerusalem, priest of the most high God. And what does he do? Well, he brings Abraham's men a feast. They've been fighting and following for 100 miles, and now they come carrying all this stuff, and Melchizedek comes out, and he feeds them, and he blesses them. Look at Genesis 14, 19. Melchizedek blessed them and said, blessed be Abram, that's Abraham, by God most high, possessor of heaven, earth, of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So somehow, there's another person who's a follower of Yahweh, Abraham's God, And remember the promise, I'll bless those who bless you. And Melchizedek has definitely blessed Abraham with words and actions. And it seems like Abraham recognizes something special is happening here. His his response is extreme. Abraham gave him a tenth of everything, a tenth of all the spoils he had recovered. Again, this is hundreds of years before God would institute the tithe, the practice of giving 10% of your income back to the Lord. It's like Abraham just instinctively knew that he needed to honor this priest of the Most High God. And that's the Melchizedek story. There's no and then. It just ends. It's a quirky, mysterious story. Moses drops it in there. Moses, the writer of Genesis, no commentary, no explanation. And then Melchizedek doesn't appear again in the biblical record, for a thousand years. A thousand years go by, and a lot happens in a thousand years. God fulfills his promises to Abraham. He grows his descendants into the nation of Israel. He redeems the nation out of slavery in Egypt and brings them to the land that he had promised them. And then eventually he gives them a king, a good king, a king named David. And just as the priest represents the people to God, the king represents God to the people. Let me say that again. The priest represents the people to God, but the king in Israel was God's representative to the people. The king extended God's gracious reign and rule to the people. And King David was a man after God's own heart. He was a warrior, he was a worshiper, and he was a poet. And a lot of his poems of worship are collected in the book of Psalms. And Psalm 110 is a unique and special psalm. It's quoted by the New Testament authors more than any other Old Testament writing. It's even quoted by Jesus himself. 
So let's look at Psalm 110. Now, normally I'd say, let's start in verse one, but this morning I wanna start just above verse one, where it says, a psalm of David. That's called the superscription, and that's actually part of the Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. That's not something inserted by your translators. That's actually there in the text. And on this particular psalm, it's especially important. All right, let's look at it. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Lord, in all caps, means what? Yahweh, thank you. Yes, anytime we see Lord in all caps in our Old Testament, it means Yahweh, the covenant-keeping creator God of Israel. Yahweh says to my Adonai, my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, normally we might read this psalm and think, well, that's God speaking to the king of Israel. He's symbolically saying, sit at my right hand. Allow my rule to extend through you. But we can't read it that way, can we? Because who wrote it? The king. David wrote this. That's what Jesus points out in the Gospels. He says, who's David calling Lord? See, God is allowing David to listen in on a conversation within the Trinity. It's mind-blowing. God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand. Anybody remember a few weeks ago, Hebrews 1.3, where's Jesus right now? He's at God's right hand, a thousand years before Hebrews. Then look with me down at verse four. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Remember, he's talking to Jesus, and what does he say? You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, a thousand years earlier, God had allowed Abraham to have this encounter with this mysterious priest named Melchizedek. Now God reveals to David that the Messiah, the Lord, will be a priest like Melchizedek. In fact, it says Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, swears it. Man, that's a pretty powerful promise. And then, y'all, for the second time, Melchizedek disappears from the biblical record for another thousand years. He doesn't appear again in the wisdom books. He doesn't appear in the major prophets. He doesn't appear in the minor prophets. Then there's 400 years of silence where nobody appears. Then we get to the New Testament. He's not in the Gospels. He's not in Acts. He's not in Paul's letters. And then, a thousand years after David wrote Psalm 110. The writer to the Hebrews is working on a sermon. The very sermon we're spending our summer studying. And I imagine him thinking and praying and asking God this question. Jesus is king. That's obvious. He's the Messiah. He's a descendant of David from the tribe of Judah. He's clearly the king. But he's also a priest. And priests don't come from the tribe of Judah. They come from Levi. So how can Jesus be our king and our priest? I mean, the whole Old Testament system was set up to make sure the king and the priest were always two different guys. 
As a matter of fact, when we study our Old Testament, we see sometimes that the king tries to step into that priestly role, tries to do some priestly duties, and every time that happens, God punishes them severely. And so I picture our writer to the Hebrews, he's got his Old Testament scrolls out, he's, he's got his wax tablet he's taking notes on, and he's chewing on his stylus and looking out the window and thinking, how can this be? And then it hits him like a bolt of lightning. It's Melchizedek. It's this shadowy, mysterious figure who's only been mentioned twice in the last 2,000 years that's the answer to the writer's question. How can Jesus be priest and king? He's not a priest from the order of Levi. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, just as God swore in Psalm 110.4. I'm excited just thinking about it. I can't imagine how excited the preacher was when the Holy Spirit revealed this to him. And then he wrote it down in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. He says, and being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The preacher draws a straight line from Genesis 14 to Psalm 110 to Jesus. And what he wants us to see is that Jesus is the great priest king. Jesus is our great king. He's also our great high priest. And not since Melchizedek had Israel seen a priest king. And now Jesus, the great, the ultimate priest king had come. You know, as we launched this series a few weeks ago, we talked about how the big idea of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater. And this is what we've seen in these opening weeks. Jesus is the final word. He's the ultimate, greatest revelation of God. We saw that Jesus gives us poise in the pain because he's fully God and fully man, and therefore he can understand and empathize with our suffering. And then last week, as Dave mentioned earlier, Clark showed us that Jesus allows us to experience true rest because we can be fully known by God and yet still fully accepted. And this week we see how that's possible. Jesus is our great priest king. He's the priest who stands between a sinful people and a holy God, but he's also the king that we all want and need to rule and reign graciously. And the preacher gets to that in Hebrews chapter five, verse one. If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there with me. I'm done running around the Old Testament. We're gonna stick in Hebrews now in chapter five and chapter seven for the rest of our time. Hebrews chapter five, verse one, he writes this. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So again, what does a priest do? He acts on behalf of humanity offering sacrifices for sins. But there's a problem, right? Because every high priest chosen from among men, he's got his own issues, his own problems, and his own sins. But not Jesus. He doesn't have any sins of his own because he's the son of God. And so that's why the writer says he's the source of eternal salvation his priestly role doesn't result in the sins being merely covered, and so the sacrifices have to be performed over and over, year after year. No, this high priest, Jesus, 
He offers a salvation that's eternal, once and for all, forever. Because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so what does this mean? Well, this preacher, like most of us preachers, he takes the long way around. And so we're gonna rejoin him over in chapter seven. Now don't worry, if you're reading through the Hebrews book with us, you're gonna get the rest of five, you're gonna get through all of six, there's a supplement at the back to help you make sense of six. But back in chapter, we're, we're gonna jump back in this morning in chapter seven because that's where he resumes this Melchizedek line of thinking. Hebrews seven, verse one, he recaps the Genesis 14 story. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of the name, king of righteousness. And then he's also the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. And so he reminds them who this Melchizedek was and why they've heard of him and, and where he fits into the story. And then he says, look, we don't have a genealogy for this guy. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. But here's what we do know. He had a priesthood that resembled that of Jesus Christ the Son of God. In other words, Jesus is not a picture of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus. He goes on in verse four. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. All those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It was Abraham who had the promises of God, and yet it was Melchizedek who blessed him. See, the preacher's making a logical argument here. These priests who are descendants of Abraham, they collect tithes. And yet, here Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and so his conclusion is this. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Melchizedek is greater because he's the one who gives the blessing and receives the tithes. So let me put it this way for you math and engineering people, which by the way, that's not me. Math's not my jam, but even I can understand this equation. Melchizedek greater than Abraham. But this is what the writer to the Hebrews is gonna do next. He's gonna use the transitive property. Hmm, math people, all you mathletes, does that get you going? To say, Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, the Levites descended from Abraham. Therefore, the priesthood of Jesus is greater than the priesthood of Levi. Jesus necessarily is greater, he's superior. And then he's gonna pull this whole argument together and tell us why it matters, beginning in verse 14. For it's evident 
Our Lord Jesus was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests, right? Judah is the tribe that produces kings, not priests. 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, in other words, not because he's a Levite, but by the power of an indestructible life. What's an indestructible life? It's a life that can't be ended. The writer's pointing to the resurrection. He says the resurrection inaugurated Jesus as our great high priest. And he was sworn in with an oath made by God himself back in Psalm 110. He quotes it here. He says in verse seven, for it's witnessed of him, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He mentions it again in 21. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And so Jesus is our great priest king. He's greater than the priesthood of Israel because he's a priest that will serve forever. Therefore, and here's the key, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. God has sworn and Jesus is the guarantee. The better covenant, the better promise. We call it the new covenant. And we're gonna talk extensively next week about the new covenant, but for this morning, let me remind you, the new covenant gives us the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to put God's law in our hearts. The new covenant allows us to be his people and allows us to know him as God. The new covenant, here's the big one, offers forgiveness of sins. And this is all guaranteed by our high priest and king, Jesus. And so I want you to see, I want so bad for you to see how all this pulls together. This is the Old Testament, New Testament intersecting moment that I've been praying we could all share together. Go back with me to Genesis 14. Melchizedek comes out and he brings a feast to Abraham's troops. What does he bring them? He brings them bread and wine. Simple foods. Staples of their diet. 2,000 years later, Jesus a priest after the order of Melchizedek takes those same simple foods, bread and wine, and he says, this bread is my body. This wine is my blood. And then look at Luke twenty-two twenty. Jesus says, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is the guarantor of the new covenant and he sealed it with his own blood and now he invites us to come to his table and be blessed by those same elements of bread and wine. And so that's what we're gonna do this morning. The band's gonna come up and we're gonna worship together. We're gonna pray and then we're gonna lift our voices and declare that the better thing, the greater thing really has come and that he's coming again. And then we're gonna take that bread, we're gonna take that wine, and we're gonna remember that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those promises to Abraham. He's the fulfillment of the promise that through Abraham he would bless the whole world. 
Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our king. And through his sacrifice, he's brought all of us who are followers of Jesus into the blessings of the new covenant. Jesus, our great priest king, really is greater. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that from the very, very beginning, you had a plan. Jesus was never plan B. He was never a second option. Lord, you've given us these clues going all the way back to 2000 BC that something greater was coming. And so now, Lord, we celebrate the greater thing has come. Lord, receive our offering of praise and blessing. And then, Lord, bless us as we receive bread and wine and remember our priest, our king, our sacrifice, Jesus Christ. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Would you stand with us and sing this? In every
you, would you, would you take your elements? And we're going to give you a moment just to open these up. If you didn't have a chance to grab some, now would be a great time to go grab some of these. So this morning we remember our high priest, our king, and our sacrifice. What I want you to do is I want you to hold your bread in your hand and just break it in half before you take it. Break it in half. That's his body broken for us so that we may be healed. We take and we eat. In the blood of our priest, king, and sacrifice was spilled so that we may be washed clean so we take together and we drink. Father, you are the only king, the only priest and our ultimate sacrifice. So Father, as we leave from here, would our lives resemble that? Would we live in response to what you've done? Would we lean on your faithfulness? And would we approach your throne room of grace with confidence this week because of what Jesus has done. So God, we give you all the honor, all the glory, all the praise for only you are worthy. It's your name I pray. Amen. If you would like prayer this morning, to my left, to your right, we would love to pray with you or celebrate what's going on in your life. Fellowship Fable, we love you. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.